My guest this week spent years in the French luxury industry, working for multiple companies, refining the image of a prestigious house, and was frankly doing just fine. Until one day she receives a call to help the company her late father owned. The challenge? Relocate and relaunch a company that's been operating the same way for nearly a hundred years. Oh, it also happens to be one of the most prestigious men's tailoring houses in history. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Anda Rowland, owner of the acclaimed Savile Row tailoring house Anderson & Shepard. Anda and I chat about her career, why she doesn't believe in the new Savile Row, why her company decided to launch a ready-to-wear line, and how they're stronger than ever because of it. Hello, how are you? Very, very well. This is this is really special to me because there are two things. One, I had no idea that you or anyone at Anderson Shepherd listened to the podcast. So when we were chatting at Pizzi Womo and you guys were like, oh yeah, we listened to it, I was like, what? Oh no. I was like, <laughs> um, and I'm very flattered, but also you are the owner of Anderson Shepherd. And like you're here, and I'm talking to you. This is this is a dream come true. This is fantastic. Well, it's also a thrill for me because we really we really listen to Blamo. Um, <laughs> my my office is in the basement of our second shop, which is what we call the Haberdashery in Clifford Street. And I don't I have a little bit of natural light through the pavement light sort of um, glass, but not much. And I sit with my colleague um, Andre, who sits left on the left of me. And we listen to Blamo usually at about four o'clock in the afternoon when things are a little bit, you know, you kind of like on a like speaker? you need some energy. Yeah, 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 oh exactly. God. So I put it on and um, <laughs> we've been through the, we go to your site. That's how we listen to it normally. So I can go through the back catalog and yeah, we've, we've, yeah, we've really enjoyed it. And I, <laughs> as, as I mentioned to you at Bitty, I really like, I like the way that you talk about your sponsors. Because, <laughs> no, because you're so enthusiastic. And, um, yeah, but that's exactly what you need at four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. When you're thinking about another cup of coffee, but you know you shouldn't and you don't have much natural light. You need a bald, goofy American guy talking about away luggage and laughing and fawning over every guest. Well, not fawning. And, and we really like the stories. I think one of my, my favorite stories was uh, Toby Bateman's story when he talked about being a buyer. I think it was for House of Fraser. Yeah. And um, talking about actually understanding, um, you know, really getting to grips with product and quality and pricing and how I think that's very well reflected in their buying for Mr. Porter. So I didn't know that backstory. And those are things that we really, yeah, that we really enjoy. Um, that's awesome. So you represent and own Anderson & Shepard, which I think to many people is Savile Row. I mean, the, 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 this is not a, uh, not to freak you out, but like the weight that you carry that the house of Savile Row, car- or excuse me, the house of Anderson & Shepard carries is astronomical and for many people represents what British tailoring is. So like you have this, you help run a brand that represents a cultural tradition and history of clothing for gentlemen. I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. Uh, just the, the honor that you guys represent. I think that's, that's extremely kind, but, but 
really the way that, the way that we look at it, um, we're a small community and we're very close to the other, you know, serious bespoke tailors like Henry Paul or Dijon Skinner. Yeah. And some of the smaller houses like Chittlebrough and Morgan, um, and sort of obviously sort of grand masters like Edward Sexton. And it's really, it's really all of those people and obviously the tailors and the out, sort of people working in the other workshops, um, the presses, all the cloth merchants and, and the mills this is really the wider community that really creates Savile Row because we we're sort of at a point now where you know you really don't want the industry to diminish any further mm-hmm. because you need the support you need the, the sort of numbers for the support um, you know support people like the pressers and the mills and everybody to 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 continue to service the trimmers to continue to service us on a day- daily basis so we are we we're close to the other the other serious tailors and there are luckily a, a good number of uh, really wonderful people that make up Savaro and firms yeah. of which we are part i mean we we're, we're famous for the english drape which is a cut that is a softer shoulder there's more cloth through the um through the chest, through the back, slightly wider sleeve at the top, very high armhole, which enables a lot of movement, but enables the shoulder to stay on the back. So that's really our, where, where Anson Shepard is extremely famous for this English drape cut. But obviously Henry Poole, Deegan Skinner, and other firms, um, as I said, Chittleborough Morgan, Edward Sexton, other firms have different house styles mm-hmm. that are just as valid. And it's all of those house styles that make up what people think of as Savile Row. Yeah. Well, and you guys also represent more of the softer side yes, of yes. British tailoring too, mm. which I think when a lot of people think of tailoring, they think, you know, ex- excuse me, British tailoring, they think of like strong shoulders, strong chest. And I'd say, you know, Anderson Shepard's definitely on the softer side. It's definitely, you're totally right. You obviously know your, <laughs> you, know, you know your stuff. I mean, many of the other houses have, uh, you know, have a, a, a military, um, history or they might have, you know, have a sort of civil, um, not civil, a ceremonial background. Oh, right. And which, which can often, well, which sort of their heritage lies in something that is more structured with a heavier canvas, mm-hmm. um, a bigger built up shoulder. Right. And the sort of our, our history comes from, um, yeah, is, is a civil tailor. Um, so we immediately, our history was to make clothing for people to wear on an everyday basis. Right. Which is why the drape cut is, is softer, um, and very comfortable. Right. So we, 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 we came directly into everyday clothes rather than through a military or a ceremonial background. Right. Like, say, like Huntsman or some of these other companies. Yeah, who had, or Huntsman, you know, exactly, where you're exporting clothing. Yeah. You know, you, it's, it's a, a different history. Exactly. It's a different, it's a yeah. different history. We started straight away with things that people should be able to wear every day. Right. Well, so let's jump back a little bit. So, you know, you've, you have been running Anderson and Shepard since 2005, I believe. Yeah, 2004. But, or, two, okay. 2004. But you grew up around this, right? I mean, it, where did this? Where are you originally from? Because you're from Britain, I assume, or London. Well, my father was was born in. So to go further back, my father was born in India and lived much of his young life in in Hamburg, oh, and wow. then came to um, England in the 30s. And he moved around. Um, he was 
had businesses in England. Then he moved down to Southern Africa. Holy and, cow. And, um, built up, uh, with other, with other people, a large group, a large sort of conglomerate. Um, he was an Anson Shepherd customer since the fifties. You know, what's wonderful. We have all of our files and our address cards and other measure books and so on. And you can see when people came in. So my father, I think it was 54. Wait, you that, still, you still have those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the, most of the Henry Pools and, and, and they, they, you know, they have ledgers going back much further than ours because they were, they were founded beforehand, but we have, we, we keep our reco- um, records and, and so forth. So my father was a customer in the fifties and in the late seventies, he took a large share in Anson Shepherd with the cutters. Oh. So like a co-op almost. Like a co-op, exactly. Yeah. And um, over the years as Cutters retired, he then bought their shares. And we as a family now, my mother has, so this is my mother has uh, just under 80% of the company. Holy so cow. So we're not outright owners, but we're, we're the, well, obviously the majority shareholders. Right. So I grew up around it in that my, my, my father was always beautifully dressed and had, um, he was born in 1917, and he had a, a wonderful valet called Leslie who would look after his clothes and other things and send things out for repairs. He was a John Lobb um, customer and and Like Shepherd. original Lobb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, as a, as a child, you would see things coming back in, going out, being pressed properly. Um, everything was, was he, he, he had a, a beautiful wardrobe and amazingly polished shoes and everything was looked after and repaired. So I grew up around that. And occasionally, very occasionally, we would go into Anson Shepherd. But at that time, in the um, shop on Savile Row, there was a bench by the door. And like a know, work children, bench. Well, no, a very nice customer bench with a velvet seat. Oh, but okay. it was by the door and women and children or, you know, visitors or accompanying, um, you know, people coming in with a customer would be encouraged perhaps to, to sit there. So we certainly weren't allowed to run around in the fitting rooms or the cutter, cutting rooms or anything like that. I mean, it's certainly not as a child. So right. you never really got past the, that sitting area in the near the front. So, but you were aware of kind of the, the lore that was being created of this place where your your father got all of his clothes. Yes, because my father had so much respect for for the people working there and um, great affection, and for the company as well. Yeah, and, as did Leslie, who who worked with him. That's so. So that that's you know, that, that's a very traditional way. My father had a very traditional relationship with Anson and Shepard, but he was also a a, a big shareholder. I mean, that goes to, sh- to show you, though, but I mean, he had the relationship first before he became the shareholder, so he yes. he fell in love with this company that, in a way, like he, he had to find some way to, to help it grow and flourish further. No, absolutely. He, he, he definitely fell in love with it and was an extremely loyal customer. I mean, I don't remember him going anywhere else. We did, he did go for his summer clothes. He did go there. We, we had a house in Acapulco and... There were a couple of tailors there that used to make summer shirts and mm-hmm. linen shorts and other things for him. But other than that, pretty much everything, weekend trousers, suits, everything came overcoats from Anson and Shepard. Wow. As this is happening, what you're seeing, like, what was your interest in clothing like? Were you interested at a young age? Did you, did you care? Was it just kind of like? Not really, no. Yeah. I, no, not really. 
What were you into uh, at the time? In my teens, mostly into playground and team sports. Really? Yeah. What were you playing? Uh, basketball. Bas- swimming. Wait, hold on. You were playing basketball? <laughs> yes, That's not the, the standard British sport. Yes, but I was at the French school. I was at the French school. But even the French school. school, they're not oh, playing Oh, no, no, basket- they played basketball. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the French school, it, it, it was in the 70s. You had um, a lot of people from a lot of Canadians. You had a lot of uh, people from West Africa, um, Lebanon. You know, you had a real mix of, of people. And the playground, you know, central London, it's opposite the Natural History Museum. It still is the same campus. The playground's pretty small. So basketball with a couple of hoops, it's, it's quite easy to fit into that environment. So it was a very, very popular, Whoa. popular playground game. And yeah, we, we, we have not clothes. No, that's fine. But, but a lot of people at the lycée were very, very well dressed. Yeah. I mean, because of the mix of, of students, there were a lot of people. So I, I did, I certainly knew who was well dressed and who wasn't. So where, where did you go after school then? So you were in the French school. I was at the lycée until the age of 14. Mm-hmm. And then I went to school near Geneva. Okay. I mean, that took it up to a, what a few were you, notches. What were you studying there? Um, I was just at school. I was at high school. Oh, okay. So I moved from the French system to the English system, bizarrely, but, um, and then so, did you did you go to university after that? Afterwards I did, yes. What were you studying? So it was there? a bit of a check at history. So I first got in to study physics and wow. uh, Magdalen College in Oxford. So obviously, you know, I was delighted, so were my teachers and my parents were delighted, but I think I bit off a lot more than I could chew and um that required a lot of dedication. And um, unfortunately, it wasn't really a great success. So after my first year, I went to the London School of Economics. And then I did trade and development economics, which is a much wider, a much, much wider subject. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty fascinating. And the great thing about the LSE at that time, I think it's still the case now, is that a lot of the teachers were actually working with governments, you know, internationally on policy, on trade policy. So when you were in lectures, you were really were listening to people who who were shaping things and who had practical, well, more practical experience than sometimes academics do. Wow. So, yeah. So that's a yeah. That was the second part of um, my college. Education. No, that's incredible. <laughs> well, I don't know. And because you ended up in Paris, right? Yeah, but that. So after that, after that um, LSE, my great passion was um, to work for. A cosmetics company and my dream was to work for Estee Lauder companies. Oh wow. Um, this was my greater. This is really, really what I wanted to do. Um, I'm particularly interested in Lauder because like L'Oreal, they're, they're masters at brand, brand creation and management. Mm-hmm. So, and luckily my father's doctor, who he'd known again since for, for many, many years, um, was great friends with one of the VPs at Lauder. Okay. And I got a six-month work placement um, at Aramis. Oh, Aramis. Yeah, I, I had Aramis. Aramis. Yes, yes. I love Aramis. And there was also New West and a number of other ones that have fortunately disappeared under that umbrella. Right. And also they managed, my boss at the time, who was an amazing man, managed a brand called Prescriptives. So after a while, after my work placement, they found me a position there. So this is, again, it's got absolutely nothing to do with well-dressed men um, but at it, that point. <laughs> sure, but in a, in a way, I would argue that it has everything to do with the perspective that you're building for you to eventually... I mean, because look, I, I think it's it's fair to say that 
you had you had a plan for what you wanted to do for yes. yourself, and you were about achieving that plan. And obviously, life and other things come in the way, and you end up that plan shifts. But all of these things that you were picking up along the way, and the different education backgrounds you had in the schools, and mm. the understanding of how the world works, helped shape your ability to obviously help manage Anderson and yeah. Shepard now. And I've always been extremely, I mean, I've been very, I must say, touch wood, but I've been very lucky. You know, I'm lucky now with what I do at that point with the doctor, with my father's wonderful doctor, Dr. Rossdale, who, who found me the work placement with the boss I had at Lauder, Tony Meeson at the time, who was a really dynamic, um, person. I think also working for Lauder was the best lesson. And it's something that I, you know, that one continues to, that I hold very dear is that Estee Lauder, especially with the Lauder family and Leonard, when he used to come to, to on doing country visits, he would spend 90% of his time out in the field, seeing the stores and meeting the people on the counters. You know, that I think is something, you know, importance of shopkeeping, importance of under, really getting as close as you can to the people who are selling, you know, what, what you're making and understanding the end customer and having a dialogue. I think right. that's one of the best lessons that, that you can learn in, that I've learned, you know, or value that I carried forward throughout the rest of, of my activity. I mean, certainly today as well, you know, we are shopkeepers. We have bespoke tailors, but we're also shopkeepers. Mm. And that dialogue with the customer that you, you know, sometimes on certainly some of the bigger brands lose, you know, as you get into your studio and as you get into your head office, I think is certainly for us one of the most precious, most valuable things that we, you know, we have at Anson Shepherd. Right. So that was definitely Leonard Lauder and the Lauder family's approach really was the importance of, you know, the, the, the customer mm-hmm. and of the salespeople. So from, from prescriptives, I went to Clinique. Uh, working in duty free, all that duty free department. Yeah. Which is a My mom wonderful cash machine. Is, and many other people would go nuts over Clinique bonus time. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, <laughs> yes of course. And uh, I remember when Clinique Happy came out, it yes, was yes. everywhere. It was everywhere, exactly. And I was at a clinic during that time, and we launched it in various airports, um, which where you're limited in what you can do. I mean, all of this, fantastic, because you're, you're looking at, different um, ways that a customer or different environments at the customer, you know, where the customer actually discovers what you're selling. And at that time, there was a big question about online sales. You know, if you, if you, I remember. The what hesitant, year is this when the this online sales question? Like 98, 99, okay. 2000. Because there was a thing is, again, like you said, with bonus time and your eight piece gift or your 12 yeah. piece gift. And, <laughs> And the thrill, I can tell you, of getting those wonderful oh, yeah. presentations where you would see the gifts available for different, uh, you know, for different retailers um, next season. I'm sure your mother would also appreciate it. I, oh, I yeah, the, the it. little kits, the little like yeah. dop kit type bags they came in. Yeah, Unbelievable. Yeah. It was really amazing. And um, no, so those, all of those things with the online question was, ideally, you want people to go into the shop. Because you've got wonderfully trained people, particularly at Clinique, where the training was was incredible. I mean, that was something else that Clinique, the training manager and the affiliates was on the same level as the marketing manager. Oh, wow. You know, which was because they valued training so highly. So the question was, if you let people buy online, are you missing an opportunity for them to go into the shop and to discover mm. the product, to learn how to use it properly, perhaps discover another product? You know, whereas online, you you might limit yeah, that personal Touch. exchange, yeah. which of course is true. 
And there are now, that's another question, now we've moved on so far, that comes in later now, you know, to, yeah, that's the to, questions continues to be asked. It can, questions to be asked. And I was very interested at completely swapping from one end of one thing to another with Simon Crompton when he had his best service award. Um, he did, he ran a poll with his readers. Oh yeah, the service. permanent style. Yeah, permanent yeah. style, exactly. And the winner, and I, I met the, the guy at Pity, very nice man, was, is, was a store called No Man Walks Alone, which is an online, yeah, you know, an online player. And, um, sometimes now, as opposed to those days when one was worried about lack of service online, you know, you can see online now with Mr. Porter or No Man Walks Alone, better, almost better customer service than you get in many shops. Yeah. So, so, so the whole, the whole, and no one certainly back in, you know, the late nineties could ever imagine that that was the case. But that was a clinic at the time. That was a big question. So there, there, that was an interesting, and interesting, there were the sort of yaysayers and, you know, it was a real, sure. it was an issue. Yeah. Well, so how did the opportunity come about for you to come on board at Anderson and Shepard? Well, this came, then the next stage is I went to business school. So I did five years at Lauder. Then I went to business school Holy just cow, outside France, Paris. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot that's good. There's some this is fantastic. There's variety. No, but there's some variety, thank God. <laughs> um, and so business school is a business school called INSEAD. Um, and I really wanted yeah. to go to INSEAD. It was my main plan also, apart from wanting to be in cosmetics. Because LVMH recruited from INSEAD. And it would have been very hard to get into LVMH head office had I, you know, through by remaining at Lauder in the affiliate. Mm. So I went to INSEAD and that was really interesting too, because if that really INSEAD, I mean, if the, the highest, the people who really had the highest, sort of most prestigious people in INSEAD were Dutch consultants from McKinsey who came from very good fraternities. Oh, so these geez. guys were like the, you know, the oracles. So when they stand up in the promotion and start talking about this or that, and they did maybe two or three years experience. Okay. And if you were from industry or ever worked with a physical product, yeah. or like me, even worse, you know, from cosmetics, you really, you know, you, you kind of were, you just very odd. Kind oh. of not parents. Um, even though they're better, I think, I mean, it's changed now, but it's 20% women at that time in said. Okay, so there was also a little bit of a old boys club kind of going yeah, on there. Yeah, it was it was kind of going on there. Mm. Um, but but uh, generally, it was a very very positive experience. <laughs> Certainly different from the duty free market. But so and then from there, luckily, I was, my thrill I was was recruited to work at Dior in Paris. Yeah, so that this is where I first learned about you in terms of you know the stuff that you had done because I mean obviously I'll let you explain, but. Hmm. Dior in Paris, that is the ultimate. I mean, that well, is cosmetics, a, cosmetics. But, but still, still, no, no, I know it's cosmetics. <laughs> I mean, Dior in Paris. I mean, they're in some cases you can argue how their cosmetics and their and the licensing agreements of a lot of these houses are able to support the couture and everything else. Yeah. So they don't. So that, exactly. So Dior cosmetics, it's quite fascinating. Still, the case is managed and is an entity entirely separate from couture. Mm-hmm. So the fashion entities. They, Mm-hmm. So there's always a, there was always a little bit of a you know tension between who creates the image and who creates the top line. Ah, okay. A- again, another you know, truly fascinating and, yeah. and particularly fascinating. Another coming back to the shopkeeper thing was that Mr. Arnaud, it being it being one of the brands that he Arnaud, bought, the head of LVMH, yes, yes, yeah. but Arnaud, when he bought one of the first acquisitions in luxury was Dior perfumes and then fashion. 
And um, again, rather like something absolutely admirable, like Leonard Lauder, Van regularly goes on Saturday mornings to the Bon Marché and does the tour of the counters and does the tour of the whole shop to see how things are displayed, what new products are there, you know, how things are lit, um, what's selling. Himself? Absolutely. absolutely, Oh my gosh. Very, very regularly on Saturday mornings. And, and because LVMH owns the Bon Marché, you know, he gets really good obviously great information yeah. uh, and and it, it comes back down to Len Lauder that that understanding the importance of the environment and of the salespeople and obviously of, of what the customer fresh information of what the customer is looking for what they're looking at and also obviously knowing your competition yeah so these these were common threads I think which we find at Anderson and Shepherd, even though it's a completely different environment and different story, there's certainly things that, you know, for me, really important. If somebody who's got that many responsibilities and interests takes the time on Saturdays to come and have a look at the store, like Mr. Lauder, then you, you understand how they, un, you know, how they see things. Right. So how many years are you at Dior? Only so, three. Only three. Only three. And, and I was in skincare development and then promotions. And okay. Promotions was an interesting part, an interesting time because there was light clinic bonus time, uh, favorite. There was, you know, certainly in Anglo-Saxon markets or in markets that a department store, you know, heavy on department store as they were then for right. cosmetics, you need those promotions and you need to anniversary those promotions and then you need Christmas coffrays and you need Father's Day gifts. Oh, and, Lord. And that was a- against really the way that Mr. Arnault and also Ben Arnault and also the brand wanted to go. Mm. And they'd overextended or they felt that they'd gone too far down that road in certain markets and they needed to withdraw those promotions. Wow. And that was my job at the time to do that and without damaging you know the affiliate the various affiliates business that's a pretty touchy yeah yeah (laughs) it was a very touchy subject it was a very touchy subject and in fact it's where i met um jerome fayan dumas who helped us a lot at anson and shepherd but i met him on you know through that exercise yeah which was to not compete with you know your wonderful lauder gifts or or bonus time wow (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, again, really, really very fascinating and a, a time when the company was changing and, and getting closer to, closer to Couture. At the time, John Galliano was still there, yeah. as was Hedy Sleeman on men's. Right. And there was also a lot of, you know, not on necessarily on promotions, but on many other products. There was a lot of dialogue. Um, they became more involved in, in some of the products. Yeah. And, and that again, you know, was, Positive creativity you know, in terms of creativity, but cause some tension. Wow. But you know, you go from Lauder, which again has huge respect for the sales end, you know, and the department store culture and many people within Lauder, which is one of the great strengths of the company were people who've been there for many years and who might have started as a counter manager and then moved up to one of the bigger accounts and then you know came became a regional sales manager then became sales manager then became affiliate you know director for the brand so that was the lord way is really to work from you know, sales end or and then you come to dior which is a perfumery brand in general which is a totally different distribution where you don't control your own sales people and the french way which is more about the image first 
you know, let's, let's really, it's, it's about the product and the image. Mm-hmm. And then it trickles down to how you're going to sell it. Whereas with Lauder, the, the image and the sales development go hand in hand. So you're going from one kind of extreme where you, you need to talk to the salespeople at Lauder on any product you're developing at your it's image with these unbelievably creative people, that, you know, who worked at the company at that time or who they would work with. And then you, work on the, you know, how you're going to distribute it and, and the sales dialogue. Wow. So it's d- different approaches. But also, I mean, I, I feel like you're, you were at an, uh, in a market where I, I would say one could argue it is the most competitive market yeah, yeah. is fragrance cosmetics. And you get every understanding of how the sales process is done mm. from the inside and the outside and then how different people are running their business. So you basically get the best education anyone could ever have in how to run a business in probably the largest and most respected luxury houses in history. Yes, I'm a bit of a brand junkie. I try almost everything out. So I get lots of friends and family members asking me, what do you think of this brand? Hey, I'm rebooting my wardrobe. Where should I start? Is this brand sustainable? Lately, I've been telling folks to check out The Style Plan by Frank and Oak. It ticks every box and their clothing is fantastic. The Frank and Oak Style Plan is an amazing subscription service that will help you get all the clothes you need and they're custom picked for you by their select team of stylists. You start by taking a quick quiz of what you like and what you don't and you'll receive a preview of your monthly box. Once you receive it, you can take seven days to figure out what you want to keep and what you want to send back. All of Frank and Oak's clothing are eco-friendly, including their denim line that uses 95% less water than others. To discover what your wardrobe's been missing, try Style Plan by Frank and Oak completely risk-free. Go to frankandoak.com forward slash blammo and you'll get $25 off your first subscription box. That's frankandoak.com forward slash blammo for $25 off your first subscription box. I think that's extremely positive. But I will, I will say that it, it's an amazing school because it's, it's in image and luxury. But when you come down to the numbers, and especially when you're in the marketing right. departments, the analysis and the numbers and the testing and the, the meetings to be on, on the project are, are absolutely, you know, perfect. Mm. Just, just beautiful spreadsheets that are reviewed <laughs> every week. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in, in large committee meetings with sure. everybody from purchasing to sales to, you know, going through every single detail of a project. Um, it's, it's really, I must say, I mean, unfortunately, it's not really what we're doing today or what we're able to do today, but it's a great school. Right. Well, so then opportunity knocks. So, yes. Well, then exactly. We, we, my mother, tells me that we're moving from or Anson Shepard's moving from its old building mm-hmm. where it's been since the 20s I remember this yeah we're a great yeah. building and it's been there since the 20s and the reason we're moving is because the landlord's redeveloping the whole building I mean you know in the Anderson Shepard 20s 30s 40s we had the whole building and gradually over time as you know ready to wear became more and more um, but the quality improved and so on we no longer needed all the floors and so at that time we had the very top floors and the basement and the ground floor. And in between there were offices. And I think the landlord realized the building was extremely tired 
and that the opportunity to completely, you know, tear down everything, the front is listed. So they kept the front Mm -hmm. and they tore down everything else in between and they wanted to divide it into two shops. So they said, listen, right, it's going to take two years. You can come back, but you'll have half the space and none of the original fittings will necessarily work in there. And uh, we can't tell you what the rent will be in two years. So my mother said, well, what is, what is the, probably let's think about what's the best idea. And, and I think everybody agreed that the worst thing to do would be to camp out somewhere in conditions that would not enable us to, the cutters to work properly or the tailors to work with them properly. And that that would be too dangerous for quality and for our workforce and also for the customer. Mm-hmm. And it would be better just to say, right, let's move somewhere else. And how many people were working there at the time? So we have a structure in Savile Row where, and it's fully approved by the taxman, a structure, <laughs> a structure, most of the big, the big Savile Row firms and the others too, that you, the cutters are employed. Mm-hmm. And so they're on, you know, they're full time. Our tailors who train with us also only work for Anson and Shepherd, but they are on their own time. So they act as if they're, you know, they are independent. Right. So full time at that time, about 18 people. Okay. I think, um, many of whom had been there and thank goodness we, we you know, still the case, um, since they were 16, 17 years old. Jeez. So, so Anne had only worked in that shop. Right. So I think, I mean, I, again, to a certain extent, I think coming in from a completely different background and not maybe being as sensitive to that as I could have been. You know, had I been more involved with the company beforehand, I might also have been very scared. But as I was coming in from completely different background with a CV that didn't really mean anything to anybody mm. in tailoring, um, well, let alone Savile okay. Row, I think that it was oddly, again, lucky because I just said, okay, here's a, here's a project. Let's, let's make it work. And by throwing some en- energy at it, oh, it's going to be fine. People may very well have been saying she doesn't know what she's talking about, but I think they kind of went along with it because I, I didn't see or I didn't feel the anxiety perhaps, you know, that I would have been had I been more involved in the company earlier. So, I mean, would you say that was helpful to you? Because I think some of the critiques or criticisms of Savile Row as a business model and as a whole, mm. not just Anderson and Shepard, is that it was somewhat dated and needed maybe new ideas and and different forms of management to kind of help grow the business. And here you come along with mm. a phenomenal understanding and education of how not just clothing is made, but how storytelling happens, how luxury happens, how, you know, this this different format that is kind of like a breath of fresh air. And you walk in and kind of get the opportunity to to take one of the most prestigious tailoring houses in history and, in a way, start it over. I, I also think, I mean, that, and we'll get back to some of the critiques because I know that it's the trouble with Savile Row is so easy to criticize. Oh, you sure. Know? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and it's so easy to be the new Savile Row and to talk about what we don't do necessarily as well as other people do. But I'll, I'll come back to that because I think that's something that... um you know, is not always correct. Sure, but, no, no, I'm happy to. But but you're right, that's a lot of what people have said. I think that 
you know, I was again lucky because if I'd come along and we'd still had said, say, had 20 years or whatever, you know, infinite lease on the old shop and had tried to change things there, I think it would have been extremely difficult. I think because I came along exactly at a time when I could add something mm. that we didn't have at the time. I could add knowledge of shop fitting, as you say, storytelling, displays. Did you feel confident um, when you came back, when you were coming there? At that time, I think weirdly, just like with the second shop, sometimes I don't think too much and just say, oh, it's got to be done. Yeah. And, and I don't think, oh, am I feeling confident? Am I the right person to do this? I just say, well, here's the problem. Oh my gosh, you know, we've got to fit all of these people and all of these jobs into a space that's a third of the size of what we've got now. Lord. And, you know, how are we going to do that? Yeah. And we've got <laughs> maybe 10 months to do it in. And we have to make sure that everybody here who's extremely valuable, because we're basically manufacturing in Mayfair, you know, that's the truth of it. We've yeah. Um, everybody here has the right workspace and is able to interact. And we've got to fit them into this shop. But uh, also the shop has to be totally fit to the customer, you know, fit for the customer. And also the shop has to make the customer feel very confident that we're confident in the future. Because when, you know, when you've got customers coming in and they're waiting know eight to ten weeks for a suit and they say oh this is not looking as good as it used to it's not you know well mm, is there a problem here you know they're not necessarily going to order again so you've got to think of obviously think of that well you've got to think of the you've got to think of obviously the practical side of the manufacturing facility if we can call it like that um and obviously you know the signal that it sends moving out of let's say the manor house into the cottage right moving off Savile Row into old Burlington Street and at that time, there were so many negative headlines about Savile Row. Um, yeah, in 2004, there were a lot of, lot of very negative stories about tailors hanging on by a thread and bad English comedy. And, you know, there was some, and so you thought, well, okay, what, whatever we do, it has to look confident. And most importantly, that the people working here in the shop have to feel confident about it. So I didn't really think too much about whether I was the right person the job and <laughs> so I, you know you just that's that's great honestly I think it it also goes to show like that you were you're becoming a, a little bit detached from any sort of ego you would have had and you're just like look there's a problem we got to fix this it's think, not about yeah. excuse me do you know where I used to work trust oh, no, no. me I know what I'm doing totally, my CV <laughs> was totally irrelevant to anybody in the shop well that's great absolutely irrelevant but if you start saying let's measure this and let's measure that then all of a sudden your experience becomes interesting and relevant and and then hopefully you know as it was the case you know people will follow you yeah and 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 you won't lose people because that's the worst yeah you you lose people but if they're feeling that you know that there isn't a future there and and that i mean the major shareholders don't know what they're doing or aren't invested or aren't interested and you start losing people that's the worst well especially like when you think of you think of the, the the work environment that you were in previously Mm-hmm. Into which you know it's it's somewhat transient. People are coming and going, um, and you know you, you might, as you climb the ladder, you're, you're seeking the next big step or the next big challenge. Or like people in like standard like air quote fashion industry. Mm. You know, I have friends where even like pre- previous guests on the podcast. It's like, well, dang it, like you got to come back on because now you don't work there. Oh, dang it! Before we were even able to reschedule it, you got to come back on because now you don't even work there. But the staff that you have at Anderson and Shepard, these are people that are there for 
30, 40 yeah. years. And incredible people. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, really, really passionate. So they're talented. employees for life. And that's another yeah. big change is that when you work in some of the big groups, not always, but sometimes, as you say, there are people who don't, don't always perhaps enjoy what they do. You right. Know, I'm at Anson Shepherd. Everybody, they really enjoy from looking after the customer, looking at new cloths, even after 30, 40 years, wow. you know, cutting out something new, seeing a customer thrill with what he's wearing. You know, this is something that, um, that people really en- enjoy that or yeah. you know, making up a jacket, the satisfaction of, you know, finishing something, seeing it hanging beautifully. Definitely. Those are the, the things that when you're moving, that was the, I think it was number one is not to lose, you know, <laughs> people who make up Anson Shepard, basically the team. And not to lose the customer, who's also the other half mm. of Anson and Trevor. Right. So, so that was, as you said, there was a there was a problem, not a problem, but there was a let's say challenge. challenge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and um, yeah, there's a lot of love in that shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, real quick, I do want to give you the opportunity mm. to address the earlier the 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 assumed criticisms mm. that we were talking about, and especially in the sense that you're not only did you have that from, you know, say like the the rumblings on the street, but also mm. what you were saying in terms of like what's happening in the press itself of just like people saying like Savile Row is dead, it's never going to happen anymore. No, it's not British. Da, da, da. Like, how was that? I don't think that if we were really passe, why would so many you know the new startups say, oh, but we're the new Savile Row? Yeah, what, no, is, the, what is the new Savile Row? I don't even know what the new Savile Row is. I think <laughs> people sending stuff off to made-to-measure factories or sending cutting stuff, you know, in London and sending it off to workshops that they, where the people haven't been trained by them. Ah, uh, the hot um, takes. I agree. Make in, in, yeah. in, in China. I mean, these are, these, there's nothing wrong with these models, but please don't compare them or say that it's the new Savile Row. It's the better margin. Also, the other criticism that, again, we get that a lot and... Uh, the guys in the shop are not sensitive to it. I am because they just, you know, it just washes off them. But, you know, when people say, oh, but a tailor should be able to do, to, to, to cut anything I want in oh any boy. shape I want. We train cutters on coats and trousers separately. Okay. Four to five years to train a cutter to make coats and jackets, jackets and um, overcoats. Yeah. And four years, three and a half to four years to make trousers. Okay. And that's just to start. And you're still overseen by the master who might have been there for 30 years. On making, so again, four to five years to make a jacket or an mm-hmm. overcate, just training. And three, three again, three, four for trousers. That is to make jackets and overcoats and trousers to our style. Mm-hmm. Now, if we want to train people to make every kind of style to that level, I mean, it's, it's endless. Yeah. It's endless. Yeah, 40 years so of training. You, you, yeah. you know, to do something really, really, really well... You know, and the drape cut is, is quite complex because uh, it's a lot of personal judgment. You know, there's no kind of formula. It's a lot of personal judgment and, and, and a lot of working with the customer on what they feel comfortable with, how much movement they need, all of these kind of things. So all of this training is with perfection in mind and with a customer in mind. And the idea that if somebody comes in, you know, a customer comes in off the street, which sometimes happens and says, I want this or shows us a picture we will just say, well, that's, it looks very good, but we can't do that. You can't be everything to everybody at that level. So at a lower level, you can take a few blocks and patterns and you can offer a wider choice. Yeah. 
Well, but, but if you're making to that level, within the way that we work, it's not possible. We're really masters of the English drape. I mean, that's who we are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the old Oscar Wilde quote is, be yourself, everybody else is taken. I mean, that's what we do. And um, that's what we are the best at. Um, so b- before we, we wrap, I mean, we have a little bit of time left. One of the things I also wanted to mention is over the years, as Anderson and Shepard, not just the the prestige of of the house and the the quality that you, that you guys are making and the fabrics you also start to you know go into ready to wear what was that process like and what was that idea well we, the the most important thing for for all of us is really to to guarantee the future of Anson Shepard you know Savile Row bespoke tailors mm-hmm. so that <laughs> there's an issue of rents, which I'm not going to touch on to, well, I'm not going to go into any real depth, but You're okay. most yeah. of that area is owned by one or two landlords or a group of landlords who've come together and invested. Yeah. And the typical arrangement now is that every four years you have a rent review. Oy. Now the rent review mostly consists of them looking at the map and saying, well, so-and-so has just signed down the road at X and so-and-so might be, you know, totally irrelevant to your business. He might be somebody who's, you know, got retail stores all over the world and wants just a flagship on Savile Row to look good and producing the garments in a completely different, different business model. Or not even made anywhere near there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. totally different business model. And so, so and so signed at X and therefore we wish to triple your rent. This is typically Whoa. every four years this is what happens. So you then say, I don't think that's fair. You have to hire representation to put your case forward you then say well maybe you're going to go to arbitration and often typically you settle at twice or the rent so and you're talking rents now typically there's a couple of few shops empty but on the other side of the road from pools there's a shop at 232,000 um rent 99,000 business rates um and so this is what (laughs) So you're basically a manufacturing... Sorry, I'm like staring, freaking out over here. Yes, that yes, sucks. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes, 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 yes. It's Excuse my... No, it's not ideal. Brash. It's really not ideal. Yeah. So what do you want to do when that's creeping up on you and you're training a lot of young people mm-hmm. and those people are, you know, really believe in the Counting future with you and, and yeah. hope to be with you until their late 60s and 70s and some cases for the tailors into their 80s because they can make from home. And your job, your main, your purpose, let's say, as, a, as our purpose, is to secure the future of Anson Shepard and of those young people. And obviously to provide beautiful clothing to our customers, but mostly, you know, it's the young people and, yeah. and it's the company. Without the customers, obviously we haven't got anything. But so, so this is what happens. And traditionally, several retailers will take a license with ready to wear mm-hmm. in Japan or China. Mm-hmm. Or produce a second line of ready to wear themselves as a way of, of dealing with that commercial reality. Yeah. That's not really Anson Shepard because if you don't sew in the shoulder in the way that we sew it in, if we don't cut for an individual and the English drape cut for an individual, then it can't be Anson Shepard as a tailored garment. It right. just can't be because it's not, that's not who we are. So we thought, okay, what can we do to, to secure the future and also to be more open, which is something else I know people mention about Old Savile Road. Da, da, da. Yeah. How, because it's not easy to come through the door when a waistcoat might cost 
600 pounds. You know, it, yeah. it's not easy to walk through the door and ask. It, it can feel intimidating. So we thought, well, we're not elitist. We're not unfriendly. It's just this is the way we make our clothes and therefore there's a cost to it. What can we do that opens us up and, you know, widens the appeal? And actually we were again very lucky. There was a shop that came up on the, on the end of the, well, Clifford Street that had been Mr. Fish, also Catherine Hamnett. It had also been Squire under Carlo Brandelli and oh God, a yeah. number of different things. Exactly. You've got those references. And also another piece of excellent, uh, great piece of luck was that a woman called Audie Charles, who many, many people are familiar with, um, uh, had, uh, was possibly, you know, I felt might come over to us from where she was at Douglas Hayward in Mount Street. Yeah. And Douglas Hayward at that time had um, passed away. And I thought maybe, you know, with the right concept, Audie might consider joining us. And it took a couple of years. Couple of years? Her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Audie, before, come before on. The shop. Yeah, before <laughs> the shop. No, because Audie's extremely loyal to, to um, the rest of the team yeah. where she was working. That's very generous. And so, no, extremely loyal. Which again is, is something, you know, made me know that that was the right person all the more. And so, yeah, so luckily Audie agreed and we, we said, okay, well, this shop, this purpose of the shop is not to sell ready to wear tailored garments. It's really to sell number one things that our customers in the bespoke shop, coming back to shopkeeping and being close to your customer, yeah. what they're looking for. And what a lot of them were looking for were trousers. Oh. Um, to garden in, to go to the beach in. They didn't want necessarily bespoke trousers to do those things in. But yeah. they were, and they would question us and say, but I can't find something. And if I find the right thing next season, it's gone and the rises are all over the place and yeah. the cloths aren't, you know, aren't, aren't the right quality. And we said, okay, great. We've got this amazing trouser department headed by John Malone. Let's look at the 12 styles or, you know, that are most popular. And we will produce some ready to wear trousers. Um, that can also be special ordered, you know, that, so that the customer can come and say, okay, he finds the right trouser with our wonderful team. And, um, he can then say, okay, I love trouser number two and I'd like it in number, you know, in style 40, but I want linen this time. I had flannel last season. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to try it on again. He doesn't have to worry about the quality. He selects the cloth that we get from the same mills that we work with in the bespoke shop. So we said, this is the basic concept. Then the other thing they were looking for was knitwear that wasn't cashmere. Right. Because obviously, if you sell cashmere knitwear, you get the margin. Yeah. But a lot of our customers, they're just not, they're not, it's, it's not luxury for the too. sake of luxury. Yeah. You know, they were like, wear some lovely wool, wear some rough Shetland. We love the texture. We want the colors. Right. And at that time, it's almost impossible to find. And we'll do, you know, knitwear that we will work with. We have like over 80 suppliers. So we go to specialist Jeez manufacturers and we'll, we'll rework all of these proportions and we'll look at these sweater styles. And rather than having a design team, Right. We said, well, let's, again, let's look at the customer and with Audie and with it, we had five or six really wonderful customers who were on a design panel, mm-hmm. um, including Adrian Gill, who was incredible. He was really our, our most amazing resource. He's, he was on, a, on his food column in, in the Sunday Times, saw the wit and his back knowledge. And it was exactly the same with clothing. I wish he'd had a column <laughs> on clothing. And, um, sometimes <laughs> he would make extremely obscene comments about why we shouldn't do something or why oh, we wow. shouldn't put you know elbow patches on things and but it, so we worked with with a group of customers <laughs> and with Audie and with the with um, Emily and Connor who you know who worked with Audie themselves on on our collection yeah um and we decided yeah let's not 
let's let's look at things. And then we have things, for instance, we said, well, let's make sure that we've got what he calls pocket money products that somebody can come in on Saturday and scarves, yeah, hats, scarves, little accessories, things for ten pounds. Yeah. You know, something really cute um, that they can that we can meet them, mm-hmm. and we displayed bespoke jackets styled differently without a tie. Yeah, um, you know, with knitwear and the way that people wear them, we can also have things made up in moleskin, make corduroy. Things are less formal than the bespoke shop, and so the second shop is really first of all with our Anson Shepherd customer in mind, but also with a, a new audience, but who might not need or be ready for a bespoke. Yes, yeah, from us. I mean, because that that's a. It's a long process. It's uh, expensive, and, and in a way, it, what's kind of exciting is is you become a little bit more attainable. Yeah, and then also like people can continue to build what an Anders, an ideal Anderson and Shepherd wardrobe and work their way towards bespoke versus what you know some. Savile Row places would have is like, well, you come to us and this is what it costs or see ya. You yeah. know, and so you, you create like a world, which is really fantastic. And a community and also yeah. uh, some fun. Another thing was that we didn't want it to be seasonal. You know, we, yeah. you know, thank God. Men don't buy clothes for the summer in February. It no. just doesn't, you know, they buy clothes for the summer maybe two days before they're going. Yeah. Again, it's, it's really built around the customer and we have core things that we, um, that we have all the time and then other things that come in seasonally um and the same thing with this shop is that we we have a, always a dialogue with the customer and some collaborations so that's that's the concept of the shop that's pretty amazing and it's, most, and it's friendly and often what happened is when i go out to dinner or meet different people and people say oh what do you do and they say oh and they, well that's a sh- such a shame i don't wear suits anymore yeah and people say that all the time you know we don't just make suits right. we can make you Anything, that's the whole point. Not anything. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have, you know, over 4,000 different cloths that you can choose from. Yeah. That's awesome. That, I mean, that, well, that's really fantastic. Kind. No, I'm serious because I think, you know, what, what you've been able to do and hopefully what people understand from this conversation is, I don't want to use the word rescue, but you really helped change the perspective and understanding of not just Savile Row, but um, Anderson and Shepard, which, you know, fortunately and unfortunately to, to many others really represents the cultural understanding and experience of British clothing. And instead of letting it die or instead of just being like, well, sorry, this is what we're going to do or, you know, this is how we started and we're never going to change, you adapted and evolved into something that is really flourishing and is exciting. So I mean, it's amazing, and congratulations. Well, you're you're very kind. I I think that the what is is really one of the most satisfying pe- things, apart from not losing, you know, the, the very valuable you know, people who actually make up the company and who, whose skill you know we rely on, is also we haven't lost you know our customers, and and you're so you just all of us are just very conscious of making sure that we you know we don't feel that we don't want ever that customer to feel alienated or mm. that we're doing something for a purely commercial or ego or PR purposes. Right. And um, that's a, often a very fine line yeah. you know, to, to cause people's perceptions or <laughs> yeah, where they see you suddenly, um, you know, Instagram. I, mean, I was talking to somebody just the other day about how surprising, you know, or how surprised we were certainly with, 
you know, with, with how many of our customers actually look at Instagram. Oh, yeah. And I know you and I were talking about it before, but, yeah. but our customers of all ages are looking at it and they enjoy it. Yeah. You know, so I go into the bespoke shop when I started and sort of phone and then, oh, no, you know, what's that nonsense again? And, oh, you know, I'm going on a tea break. I can't, I just don't want to be in the film. I said, come on, guys, come on. I <laughs> promise you, this is not for, this is for our customer. Yeah. They're, and when, when they started getting nice comments from guys coming in or someone saying, oh, what was that amazing green tweed, you know, that I saw in that picture, you know, it really, it also, it, it changed their view on, on their willingness to appear. Yeah. That's amazing. No, it's, it's, I think that's the same thing. It's anything. You just got to keep, make sure that people feel involved. Yeah. That's great. Well, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for your time and candor throughout this entire conversation. This was really special. Thank you so much. Well, it's a thrill for me, particularly as I said, I've been, you know, we've been your fans for, um, especially the, also the back catalog for quite a while. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. That means a lot. You've been listening to Blamo. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Blamo is edited by Brendan Finn, and our intern is Connor Vaughn. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Want to know more about what's going on in fashion, menswear, or just meet other folks? You can join our Slack group. It's a private chat group online where tons of Blamo listeners chat about everything. Send us an email saying, hey, I want to join the Slack group and we'll get you in. Stay tuned for future episodes because we are approaching our 100th episode and we're working on some fun projects and events all around the world you'll want to be a part of. See you next week.